This is The Far Middle, episode 145. Our dedications for some time now, I went back and actually did a tally, almost 20 episodes, have focused on sports figures or events that had historical and cultural or perhaps societal aspects that culminated in the dedication subject being as famous for those attributes as they were for what they brought to the world of sport. And we decided to move into this vein of dedication for a few reasons. First, many a constant listener told me that they loved the podcast, but they were not into sports, so the first few minutes or so of each episode weren't of great interest to them. Choosing dedication subjects that had bridged to beyond the sports world, it would fix that problem for one of our listener demographics. Another reason, there are some truly memorable and incredibly interesting subjects that fit these criteria. Think about some of our more recent dedication subjects. Fascinating aspects beyond the field or arena of the day job or of the subject, so to speak. And for what it's worth, using unofficial data, I do receive more feedback on these dedication subjects than ever. So we're going to continue to mine this vein for a while. Episode 145 offers up yet another intriguing dedication. A baseball pitcher from the 1970s, but a personality and story for the ages. And that's a story that's reached urban legend status, but that is also sad and tragic. There was no one like this guy, and there likely never will be. His name was Doc Ellis. Unfortunately, much of Doc's life story revolves around substance abuse. At age 14, he began drinking alcohol and using drugs in Los Angeles, where he grew up. And we're going to come back to substance abuse with Doc's story, as you will soon hear time and again. And Ellis played baseball as an infielder for a local L.A. semi-pro team that ironically was named the Pittsburgh Pirates Rookies. And that was named after the key team he eventually played for in the majors. That semi-pro version of the Pirates had a long line of what would become pro players in the 1970s. So check out this roster who ended up in Major League Baseball stadiums a few years later. You had Willie Crawford, Bobby Tolan. Roy White. Roy White was a great player. How about another great Reggie Smith? He was awesome. And Bob Watson. But Ellis refused to play baseball for his high school team because another player allegedly made a racial slur against them. But when Ellis was caught drinking and smoking marijuana at high school during his senior year, the school agreed not to expel him if he agreed to play for the school's baseball team, which he did for a couple of games. And after high school, Alice attended a small local junior college in L.A., and Major League Baseball teams wanted to sign him to a contract, but he heard rumors that the Pittsburgh Pirates gave out the best signing bonuses of $60,000. So he held out until the Pirates made him an offer, but he was arrested for stealing a car, and the Pirates signed Alice only for $500 a month and a $2,500 signing bonus. Crime doesn't pay, does it? Now, during his minor league career, Ellis once chased a heckler in the stands with a baseball bat. Um, He was channeling, I guess, a bit of Ty Cobb from two generations prior. And Ellis started using pills when he pitched in the minors, specifically amphetamines, which wasn't abnormal for the times, by the way. And soon enough, Ellis became addicted. And he claimed that he never pitched a game in the majors without using amphetamines and that he needed between five and 12 capsules a game. Ellis acknowledged that he began to use cocaine in the late 1960s, probably in the minors. Once he made the major leagues with the Pirates, Ellis no-hit the San Diego Padres in June of 1970. Legend has it he was under the influence of LSD when he performed that feat. And there is a great documentary made of this game and the events surrounding it. It's a must-watch. The title is No-No, a documentary, 
no-no being the nickname for a no-hitter in baseball, of course. And it's readily accessible on the web and YouTube and streaming. Definitely worth a look, as I said, even if you're not a, a sports fan. It's a great story. Well done documentary. Now, after the Pirates had flown to San Diego on Thursday, June 11th of that year, uh, right before the no-hitter game, Ellis was visiting a friend in Los Angeles. So he was up north in L.A., and he used LSD, according to him, two or three times. Now, thinking it was still Thursday, Ellis took a hit of LSD on Friday, actually, at noon, and his friend's girlfriend reminded him at 2 o'clock that Friday that he was scheduled to pitch that night in San Diego. So Ellis leaves L.A. in a hurry. He gets to San Diego. I think he flew down there. And he gets to the stadium in San Diego at 4.30 p.m. The game starts at 6.05 p.m. Ellis said that he threw the no-hitter despite being unable to feel the ball or see the batter or catcher clearly. Here's uh, here's a quote from Ellis about that game. I can only remember bits and pieces of the game. I was psyched. I had a feeling of euphoria. I was zeroed in on the catcher's glove, but I didn't hit the glove too much. I remember hitting a couple of batters, and the bases were loaded two or three times. The ball was small sometimes. The ball was large sometimes. Sometimes I saw the catcher. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I tried to stare the hitter down and throw while I was looking at him. I chewed my gum until it turned to powder. They say I had about three to four fielding chances. I remember diving out of the way of a ball I thought was a line drive. I jumped, but the ball wasn't hit hard and never reached me. Now there's a there's a quote or a summary of the game from Ellis's perspective. And he reported that he never used LSD during the season again though he continued to use amphetamines. Ellis said that he regretted taking LSD that day because it robbed him of his greatest professional memory. Many dispute, by the way, that he took LSD, and many say that he did. And a song has been sung about it. Books have been written about it. I mentioned the documentary No-No. Johnny Carson did monologues on him. Robin Williams did stand-up about him. He was a fashionista. He would wear hair curlers in his hair while on the field. And Ebony Magazine ultimately wrote an exclusive story on that. And Doc ended up passing away too young um, from liver disease in 2008. He was a personality, an advocate for causes, an addict, an individual, a lightning rod. In many ways, he epitomized much of the late 60s and 1970s. Here's to Doc Ellis and his wild ride. When Doc Ellis was hurling no hitters and struggling with substance abuse, America and the globe were experiencing their own version of volatility. Now think of the late 60s and the 1970s. Vietnam protests, the Vietnam War itself, conflict in the Middle East with Israel, oil embargoes, and Iranian hostage crisis, and of course the Cold War with the USSR. Yeah, trying times to say the least back in the late 60s and through the 1970s. But in many ways, it's back to the future looking at the geopolitical map today and comparing it to what it was looking like during the heyday of Doc Ellis. In South America, Venezuela is eyeing up Guyana for oil reserves. Um, North Korea, never wanting to be forgotten about and needing to be the globe's center of attention, it looks to manufacture its own drama, and its leader publicly states that North Korea is no longer seeking peaceful reunification with South Korea. And he now references South Korea as North Korea's principal enemy. And of course, all of that rhetoric is accompanied by firing of missiles into international waters. And yes, the grinding warfare and constant killing occurs on a scale that now reminds everyone of World War I trench warfare in the Ukraine. Putin displays no signs of stopping his assaults, 
while the Ukraine shows no clear signs of how it's going to be decisively victorious. And then there is the Middle East. Israel invades Gaza after Hamas commits its atrocities with no end in sight to that bloody occupation. Hezbollah threatens Israel to its north, and that second front of a war could open up at any moment. Houthis in Yemen, they fire on shipping across the Red Sea. Iran backs just about all of these terror organizations and meanwhile finds itself a victim of a terror attack, which is ironic to some. And Pakistan violates Iranian airspace and fires on another terror group inside the borders of Iran. Now, that's what you call a region that has gone to hot conflict. Yes, quite the wall of worry when you look across the globe. Unbelievably, none of those conflicts and escalations that I just described constitute the threat that I fear the most. And you know by now, if you've been listening to this podcast, that threat is not climate change. I don't worry about that at all. Instead, I am greatly concerned about China and what may or may not happen and when it comes to Taiwan with respect to just about any day now. It's the most dangerous of all these conflicts and seems to be the most disruptive to the world. Yet no one seems to be paying attention to it with all the other distractions currently ongoing. Taiwan in January recently held elections, and the winner is a candidate or was a candidate that the Chinese Communist Party labeled as the war candidate coming from the war party. And China continues to amp up its intimidation tactics militarily toward Taiwan. Heck, by the time this episode airs, the conflict may have already broken out. And by the time that happens, you can then get an appreciation for how tense the situation currently is. And that leads us right into our primary connection for this episode. If war breaks out between China and Taiwan, meaning China moves on Taiwan, what do the experts expect to happen? In other words, what do these simulations and wargaming exercise indicate from conflict between China and Taiwan, which inevitably, quickly or immediately escalates into a conflict between China against not just Taiwan, but also its allies, Japan and the United States? I had an opportunity recently to view a presentation by Mark Kantian, who is a military strategist that specializes in assessing the potential China-Taiwan conflict. And Kantian is the real deal. He served in combat tours across the Middle East within the U.S. Marine Corps. He served in government focusing on military matters. He taught at Harvard and Johns Hopkins. And he now is part of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. Now, Kantian led the most complex and public war game of a simulated Chinese attack on Taiwan and how the invasion would go down that you'll find out there, how the U.S. would get involved, what would prevail in terms of different tactics, who would prevail with respect to nations, and when it might end. And the report was published for all to see. The war game had 25 iterations under a dozen different scenarios, so it was very extensive, um, with one serving as a base case. The other being the other cases being alternatives and the United States and its allies could save Taiwan, but it came at a huge cost of life and equipment. And the Taiwanese economy is wrecked and U.S. capabilities militarily are diminished. China pays an even heavier price in loss of life and military capability. And the Chinese Communist Party would likely succumb or collapse from the loss. The Chinese landed in the south of Taiwan, not the north, which is, of course, closer to the, uh, the Chinese mainland. Now, the north has the population centers in most of Taiwan's military. So China likely lands in the south of the island, away from the concentrated resistance, and then it tries to build up and move north from there. 
The Chinese fleet is in two parts. Um, the first is to escort the amphibious ships, and the second part is setting up a picket line to protect the amphibious ships from U.S. missiles and attack. The amphibious ships are the key to everything when you look at these different assessments under the wargaming. If the Chinese lose their amphibious ships, then they can invade or sustain the invasion, whether it be in the south or the north part of Taiwan. And the role of Japan is an also interesting aspect and a critical one in these war games. Most scenarios saw Japan allowing the United States to utilize its bases to defend Taiwan. And it also assumed that Japan would not engage directly against China unless China attacked those Japanese bases. And in about 20 of the 25 iterations, guess what? China ended up doing just that. They attacked the Japanese bases during the war game, which then meant Japan responded and became engaged in the conflict directly. And this is a good example of why wargaming is a fruitful exercise when done correctly. So why did China usually end up attacking Japan in these simulations, making it tougher for China to prevail over Taiwan because it then brought in another adversary? Well, China quickly realized that the United States was able to build up military capability quickly using the Japanese bases as launch points. So under game theory, China figures that if it wants to prevail in Taiwan, it has to stop the U.S. buildup on the Japanese bases, and thus it attacks Japan at those locations. The Chinese know that the Japanese would view this as an act of war and ultimately respond accordingly. So the Chinese think through it and they realize there's no downside to not just attacking the Japanese bases where U.S. forces are, but also attacking all Japanese military infrastructure and locations and targets. Thus, China unleashes a massive strike against Japan and that drags Japan into the conflict. I will tell you this aspect of the war game, what happens with Japan became hugely interesting in Japan itself. There was even a one-hour TV episode that aired nationally about this. And the Japanese understand that what had happened to them during a China-Taiwan conflict or a simulation of one, it was largely determined by Washington, D.C. and Beijing, not Tokyo, which is intriguing for sure. Now, another crucial and incredibly interesting aspect of these war games was that the outcome came down to a key race in a key war of attrition. On one hand, the Chinese need to protect, as I said, its amphibious ships for as long as possible to allow a buildup to occur on Taiwan itself. But on the other hand, the United States needs to press its air attacks using attack planes as aggressively as it can to destroy those amphibious Chinese uh, ships in that fleet, which likely results in heavy combat air losses for the United States. The entity that prevails in this aspect will be the one that can continue to press its attack without losing the capability to do so. In other words, does the U.S. run out of attack aircraft before or after China runs out of amphibious ships? Understand that most of the aircraft losses for the United States and Japan, they're going to be on the ground when they would be hit by Chinese missile attacks. So a countermaneuver that should be under consideration and execution today, you know, sort of lessons learned from the war gaming, so to speak, would be the United States and Japan dispersing its attack aircraft across various locations and building hardened protective storage areas for those planes that could better sustain or withstand a missile attack. And make no mistake, no matter what the iteration or scenario, the Chinese are able to land troops on Taiwan. China just overwhelms initial defenses to be able to traverse the uh, sea straits and land the troops. The, uh, the wargaming exercise also shows that U.S. submarines, 
they are highly effective in these war games and they wreak all kinds of havoc, as are U.S. bomber aircraft equipped with long-range cruise missiles. So these bomber aircraft, they can fly and sort of operate outside the Chinese defensive bubble and they launch safely from afar. And then the issue of both advantages, whether it's the submarines or those bomber aircraft, it comes down to the inventory of each, and specifically of long-range cruise missiles, as well as the submarines. They're limited and they need to be increased um, if you want to sort of prevent or prevail in a conflict like this. And the War Games projected the conflict, by the way, to last about three to four weeks, just shy of a month. The Chinese are still landed on Taiwan toward the end, but they lose so many amphibious ships that China can't supply the troops on the island nation and they can't reinforce them. Thus, they effectively become stuck. And the main conclusion of the war game exercise was that if the U.S. enters the conflict, it is highly likely that China will ultimately lose in an attempted invasion of Taiwan. And that surprised me. And I think it surprised a lot of the, the experts that, uh, that look at this and invest time with it. But we should recognize that an amphibious assault is one of the most, if not the most, difficult military exercises to pull off successfully. So maybe I shouldn't be surprised. And the topography of Taiwan lends itself to effective defense. You've got mountains, rivers, and oh yeah, it's an island. Yes, the, uh, the degree of difficulty for China looking to storm Taiwan, it's actually quite high. So with all that in mind, here are my conclusions and questions about these war games, which provided, I think, again, great insight to what might be looming as a global crisis. Um, first, do the Chinese and do the American militaries, do they fight effectively? China hasn't fought a major military campaign in decades, at least a generation of soldier. And the U.S. hasn't fought this type of major sort of head-on conflict at scale since perhaps Korea. The base case of the war games assumed both nations were able to fight as equipped and expected, but I'm not so sure. And history, by the way, is on my side with that skepticism because military history is just rife with the start of conflicts and wars showing great ineptitude of major powers and combatants more often than not. Here's another question that I've got regarding these war games. When China attempts to invade Taiwan, the bulk of Chinese military capabilities are focused on protecting as I said, those amphibious ships, which means mainland China is left relatively unprotected and vulnerable to U.S. attack. But will the United States take advantage of that vulnerability and attack Chinese military locations on the mainland? I can see it now. China launches an attack on Taiwan. The United States engages to protect Taiwan. But then the U.S. hesitates to go all out and attack military targets on the Chinese mainland. We struggle with the E word as an escalation. And that struggle is deadly in the real world because you end up fighting with one arm tied behind your back. Now, consider this special aspect of the uh, China invades Taiwan and creates confrontation with the United States scenario. America cannot do what it did and what Europe is doing with Ukraine when Russia invaded it, which was to support it, sort of. And what I mean by sort of is that we obviously did not directly intercede on behalf of Ukraine, nor did NATO. And our support was a measured supply of ammunition and financial aid and limited weaponry. The idea was that we enjoyed the luxury of being able to keep Ukraine on life support and to feed it various needed uh, resources to keep it alive and still keep it fighting Russia, but without ourselves having to be directly intervening and getting in the middle of the fight directly. 
That luxury or scenario is not going to exist in the case of Taiwan being invaded by China. China will have a very strong defensive bubble that wraps around Taiwan, which means we're not going to be able to supply Taiwan without direct military confrontation. Now, the, uh, the hard truth is that the United States will need to fight China directly if it desires to save Taiwan. And Taiwan will need a constant supply of munitions in pretty quick order after day one of the invasion. And I'm not sure if that really seals Taiwan's fate for the better or for the worse, because based on what we've seen with the fleeting Western support for Ukraine, I do worry about the resolve of America to directly confront China if it were to move on Taiwan. Now, how about this little detail? Will the Taiwanese fight or will they fold and collapse the minute they're confronted with the brute force of a Chinese invasion? The, uh, the war gamers from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, they assumed Taiwan would fight. And when they presented this assumption to Taiwanese leaders, they found an interesting dichotomy on the views of that assumption. The younger generation felt that Taiwan and the Taiwanese would not generally fight while the older generation felt that Taiwan would handle itself well and the Taiwanese would show fighting spirit. So we can't say for sure, of course, but that is of obviously a crucial factor in the overall analysis and outcome. And speaking of will and fighting spirit, what about Americans? Will public opinion in the United States be able to stomach the level of losses that are likely to be suffered if we want to save Taiwan? Heck, will the military leadership be able to stomach those level of U.S. military losses? I've got serious concerns about the ability or willingness, I suppose, of either to do so, especially in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, which for too many Americans looks on the surface to be a fight that's not one of our making or of our direct concern. Think back to World War II. Until the attack on Pearl Harbor, a substantial portion of the American public took the isolationist view and did not want to involve the United States or Americans in the growing conflict across the world. It was only the unprovoked and surprise attack by the Japanese killing thousands of Americans that stoked the anger which catalyzed the will to fight. You're not going to have the benefit of that when it comes to China invading Taiwan, and that might make all the difference in the world in 2024. Now, of course, if China unilaterally attacks American military locations, say, in Japan or throughout uh, Asia or the Pacific, that could change uh, the overall view and the, uh, the mood of America. And another reason I'm concerned about this, you know, don't underestimate, of course, the Chinese Communist Party and its ability to manipulate Western media when it comes to painting a favorable picture for China toward um, creating an image of concern and biased view when it comes to whether or not the United States should become directly involved in a conflict over Taiwan. You take that uh, manipulation via media, which happens every day here in the West, and you add it to our tendency to talk a good game and maybe send financial support and impose sanctions instead of sending troops, that could be a recipe that serves China quite well and spells doom for Taiwan. Now, one final note of this fascinating war game conducted between uh, China and Taiwan. How does the situation, so to speak, end? And what I mean, as I said, the war game projected the conflict to span a number of weeks, approaching about a month in duration. And most often, China ends up defeated because it can't supply or supplement the forces that it landed on the island. But that's not the end of the situation or scenario in the real world. 
even the optic, don't forget, of a less than favorable outcome for Chinese leadership could push the Chinese Communist Party to the brink of destruction, which means there might not be a simple retreat. And instead, we get an inevitable escalation of the situation. What you might see instead is a point of no return once invasion is started, whereby China continues to double down and escalate because basically it has no downside in doing so. It's facing extinction if it loses the battle for Taiwan. And it's got nothing to lose to push all of its chips in toward truly global conflict. That, more than anything, should keep you and I awake at night. Man, we could talk this subject for hours, but we got to go. So if you are losing sleep over a China-Taiwan potential conflict, how about we close this episode with a connection to one of my fave movies when I was a kid that is spot on for the topic of war gaming. I'm talking about the 1983 classic movie War Games, and that's games as in plural and war games all one word. Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy, they star in the movie. Those are two famous acting products of the John Hughes movie genre, Hello, Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club, which I dive deep into when I publish my top 10 ranking of John Hughes films from the 1980s. You can read about it and the ranking details of those 80s Hughes movies on nickdeolius.com at your leisure. But War Games, that's not a John Hughes film, but it is a movie made before its time with respect to technology or perhaps right on the cusp of the start of a new time. It talks about and deals with computing power and hacking. Um, it's worth a refresh, I think, and a rewatch for these days with the advent of AI and cyber attacks rising, similar themes and issues, um, just a newer version with a subsequent generation when you look at the, uh, the next chapter of technology. The movie was nominated for three Oscars. The, uh, the famous exchange from that movie was between Broderick's character and the supercomputer uh, with the computer asking, shall we play a game? And Broderick typing in at the start of the movie, love to, how about global thermonuclear war? He ended getting up more than he bargained for, but you have to watch the movie if you want to see how it turns out. I hope you got what you bargained for and then some with this episode of The Far Middle. Let's do this again in a week, shall we? 